I'm, uh, I wanted to talk about this uh, for a lot of reasons, um, one of which is because just the importance of Plato. I've always found Plato very inspiring um, ever since I encountered him in spite of whatever annoyances I might have had with particular arguments that Socrates made. The whole experience of encountering him in the dialogues was, um, was an inspiration and always has been for me. And I think it's important for all of us to um, find him and his works inspiring um, as well as illuminating. Um, so I'm glad to be talking about this. Um, and uh, the cave allegory in a particular way has always had a great impact on me um, in thinking about my life and where I am in my thought and where other people are and that sort of thing. So I think it's worth looking at. And I think also that for many years I didn't understand it very well at all. And I think that one of the things that first made me look in a bigger context was uh, probably reading Alan Bloom or one of his ilk. And some of the ideas that they had, I thought, well, well, that's really different. And then the more I paid attention to the dialogue, the more I thought, they're really on the right track. There's a whole lot there to, pay to be gained from that kind of reading. So um, I'm going to share that, some of those reflections with you today, whether it's, you know, sometimes when you're writing these things, you think it was really important. And then as you write it, it's like, isn't this obvious? Either It's either totally stupid or it's totally obvious, so why are you doing it anyway? But um, I enjoyed, enjoyed finally pulling it all together, and I'll share that with you. Um, I think also it's helpful to see that when you're reading Plato's dialogues, that the, um, that the, the drama part is crucial. Uh, when you read it, especially for the first time, you want to ignore all that and get, on the, get the arguments. But the dialogues are there partly so that you can see manifested in the characters what those opinions amount to. A lot of times you, you don't really see what an opinion amounts to until you start thinking about the man who holds it. So Thrasymachus, in the beginning of the Republic, he's, um, he's a man who holds that justice is the rule of the stronger. And he, he lives that. He's a very forceful speaker. He, he's, he frightens Socrates many times with the way that he, the dramatic, um, intimidating way that he comes across. So um, I think that's important also in reading and understanding the Republic and what's going on is to pay attention to the drama of it, the characters, um, the whole setting. It's also important to look at Socrates as a model. I've uh, thought for a, a long time in a way that Socrates is, um, Socrates as Plato presents him is sort of the saint of philosophy, right? He's the holy man, the guy who did it most purely and completely. And um, whether that was, to what extent it was like the real Socrates, I don't know, but I would like to think it was like him. And at any rate, the, the picture that you get is, is amazing. In the drama of the Republic, but at the end of book six, Socrates loses control of himself for a moment. Um, so uh, if you, I'm not gonna, I'm going to read some quotations from the handout here as we go along. So the first one is, he says, I forgot that we were playing and spoke rather intensely. For as I was talking, I looked at philosophy, and seeing her undeservingly spattered with mud, I seemed to have been vexed and said what I had to say too seriously, as though my spiritedness were aroused against those who are responsible. 
Now that's Socrates saying his blood was boiling. Okay, that's, that's, the, that's how much it would take for him to be vexed. Um, so when that happens, we should take it seriously. What was it that made him upset? And um, uh, it probably takes a lot to make him upset. If you think about the clouds and the way Socrates is portrayed in the clouds, the story is he went to the performance and it didn't upset him at all. And in fact, people wanted to, people wanted to say, who's Socrates? And he stood up so that he could see how much like him the comic mask was. Yeah, he's just as ugly as that. Look at that. Didn't bother him much at all, apparently. But here he's, uh, he's very angry. And I think that um, it's because he's taking what he's been saying in the last several books uh, very seriously. And um, he thinks it's really important for the truly philosophic nature, what he's been saying, in order to reach his full potential and not become corrupted. And it's also very important for society. He thinks having philosophers like the kind that he's, he's trying to help us envision are crucial for society. Um, so I'm gonna first talk about the philosophic nature and the way he describes it um, and its corruptions the corruptions of it and the dangers. Um, so uh, this whole section of the Republic begins uh, in book five, towards the end of book five. In book five, that's when Socrates was going to go on and start talking about the, first he had talked about um, his ideal Republic where you can find justice with the guardians as they had the after they'd had the education in music and gymnastic. Then he's gonna go on and say, now let's look at the corruption. So he wants to jump to book eight. But they won't let him because he said something that was, um, which they thought was um, unusual, and they wanted him to explore it more. And um, so he says, I don't really want to talk about this, but if you're going to force me to, they want to talk about how you could bring the regime to be, really. How, that could, how what he just talked about could actually come to be, and whether it could come to be. And he says, well, yes, it can come to be. Now, there are three things that you're going to find really difficult to accept. The third one, which is the most difficult to accept, he thinks is the most, people would find the most preposterous, is that the philosopher should actually be a ruler, or the ruler should become a philosopher. That, he says, is more preposterous than that women would have the same education as men do, and, and fulfill the same offices, and even more preposterous than the idea that women and children should all be in common. So, um, he starts talking about the philosopher then being a ruler uh, at the end of book five, and that goes all the way through to the end of book seven. And the reason he says this sounds preposterous is because everybody has this false image of what a philosopher really is. Um, and the image that everybody has of a philosopher is one that makes him seem either useless or dangerous. And you can see that in the clouds. The Socrates as presented in the clouds is both useless and dangerous. He's useless because of him, because he's always up in a basket doing weird things up there. And he's dangerous because he introduces the young to right and wrong logic and just lets, those, let them, lets them go at it. And that ends up leading to Stripsiades' son coming back and saying, it's right for me to beat you. And that's the way the play ends. Um, so, Socrates says that's what everybody imagines the philosopher to be, but really 
if you look at what the philo philosophic nature is, the nature that's apt for philosophy, um, he says you can see that by argument. And um, the conclusion is in the second quotation. He says, is there any way then in which you could blame a practice like this that a man could never adequately pursue if he were not by nature a rememberer, a good learner, magnificent, charming, and a friend and kinsman of truth, justice, courage, and moderation. So that's what Socrates thinks the true philosophic nature is. And he says you can see that if you start from the foundational characteristic of the philosophic nature, which is the passion for learning everything, everything that is, every, about, everything, about everything that is. So in the next quotation, the one who is willing to taste every kind of learning with gusto and who approaches learning with delight and is insatiable, we shall justly assert to be a philosopher. And with that passion for learning would come a commitment to having knowledge, not being deceived, not resting in opinion, never being content with ignorance, um, always pursuing the highest good of the soul, not being attracted by money and offices and that sort of thing, the, the kinds of honors that most people pursue. So that would lead you to be magnificent, um, willing to do the greatest, the greatest deeds. Charming, because you're not going to, that kind of person is really naturally attractive, so Socrates thinks. Um, and then, it would, give, it would uh, give birth to all the virtues because you're going to be a just man. You're not interested in taking more than your share uh, from other people. In fact, you'd, you'd, get, you'd willingly give a lot away. You'd be liberal, courageous because you, uh, you know that death, you have a better understanding of what death is and what's really to be feared. So that's what he says the, the really philosophic nature is like. Now, why, why is it then that people have this false image of what a philosopher is? He says, well, that's, he has to admit that's from experience. Uh, it's, it's people's experience of philosophers that leads them to, to get the bad image that they have. And he gives two accounts of that, two, two parts of an account. First, he says, the truly philosophic nature hardly ever becomes a philosopher or at least not a prominent, a prominent philosopher. Never, he hardly, they hardly ever become a philosopher because if that's what a philosopher really is like, then everybody's gonna, he's gonna be a natural leader. And so he's gonna have his pick of, what's this, of the best that society has to offer. And hardly anybody is, gonna is actually going to be able to follow through with their love of learning when all of these other demands and opportunities arise. So they'll end up becoming leading businessmen or maybe president or something like that, um, rather than pursue philosophy. Or if they actually do pursue philosophy, they'll realize that this is not what society wants of them, and so society gets kind of angry at them because they're not fulfilling their potential so they'll just tend to lead quiet, private lives. They'll not mess with society. And then um, 
And then society thinks, wow, that's, look what happens when you're a philosopher. You end up, you end up withdrawing yourself from us and you're no good to us. Um, now, those who pursue philosophy in a more public manner are either lesser souls than is, re than is really appropriate for philosophy, who are attracted by the kind of weird glamour that comes with being a philosopher. They like the fact that they're different, they're other than people. Um, they're pursue they, they like the image of themselves as pursuing the higher good. Um, so then say, man, that's the kind of, that's a philosopher, I don't want to be anything like that guy. Um, though that person is not very dangerous. But often those who pursue philosophy, if they really have a greatness of soul by nature, they are in great danger of being corrupted by philosophy because they start dabbling in it. And when they start dabbling in it, it leads them to challenge all kinds of things that, that society assumes. And so then it, make, it puts them above society. And then, it, then when they, if they don't actually pursue it and they go back and enter into the kinds of things that society praises, they can be very dangerous to that because they no longer have respect. They no longer have reverence for the, for the foundations of their society. So they become very dangerous. Um, and I think we get examples of, of these kinds of characters in Plato's dialogues. I'm just going to focus on two, uh, both of them from the, well, both of them characters in the symposium. Uh, one of them you don't remember unless you're in my seminar last year, right? <laughs> Apollodorus. Um, Apollodorus is the person who's telling the story of the symposium. And you just meet him at the beginning, and then he starts talking, and then you forget he was there at all. But he's, uh, here's how he talks about himself. Um, he says, uh, I'm going to skip a quotation there, but Apollodorus well, not three years have elapsed since I became acquainted with Socrates and have made it my daily business to know all that he says and does. There was a time when I was running about the world, fancying myself to be well employed, but I was a most, really a most wretched thing, no better than you are now. <laughs> and there's more of that, more of that. Um, he goes on about that. Um, not much is said about that, but he does seem to be one of these little mannequins, these little pretenders to philosophy. But he likes, you know, you think I'm, he likes the fact that people think he's crazy. And he says, you think I'm crazy, but I know you're crazy, that, that kind of thing. Um, and this is, the, uh, this is the guy who's living with Socrates as much as he can, I think. The other one from the symposium is Alcibiades. And Alcibiades appears not just in the symposium, but in, um, in Thucydides. And, um, and we see him elsewhere. Um, I think Alcibiades is the real philosophic nature. That's the one that Socrates really wanted to pursue philosophy. Plutarch tells us as much in, uh, in his life. So uh, this the next quotation. But the affection which Socrates entertained for him is a great evidence of the natural noble qualities and good disposition of the boy, which Socrates indeed detected both in and under his personal beauty. And hearing that his wealth and station and the great number both of strangers and Athenians who flattered and caressed him might at last corrupt him, resolved, if possible, to interpose and preserve hopeful a plant from perishing in the flower before its fruit came to perfection. For never did fortune surround and enclose a man with so many of those things which we vulgarly call goods, 
or so protect him from every weapon of philosophy and fence him from every access of free and searching words as she did Alcibiades, who from the beginning was exposed to the flatteries of those who merely sought his gratification, such as might well unnerve him and indispose him to listen to any real advisor or instructor. Uh, and there's more about that. Um, I think that Socrates has Alcibiades, we're supposed to realize Socrates has Alcibiades in mind when he's talking about things in the, these th things in the Republic. So in the, in, um, the next quotation is from the Republic. What do you suppose such a young man will do in such circumstances? <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Especially if he chances to be from a big city, <coughs> is rich and noble in it, and is further good-looking and tall. Won't he be overflowing with unbounded hope, believing he will be competent to mind the business of both Greeks and barbarians? And won't he, as a result, exalt himself to the heights, mindlessly full of pretension and empty conceit? That's what he saw happen to Alcibiades. So I think Socrates is personally bitter about this, um, to the extent he can be, because instead of Alcibiades for a companion, he got Apollodorus. <laughs> and um, so he, he, feels, he feels cheated, and he also feels the great loss. Alcibiades is the, tragi the tragic figure of philosophy. And um, Socrates says a number of times in this section of the Republic, we, won't, we shouldn't feel anger at a man like that. <coughs> we should feel pity for him because there's just hardly any way he could escape from what society was going to do to him. So <coughs> because of the false image that people have of philosophy and philosoph of philosophers, um, then there's, a, there's an anger at least in his society, there was an anger to directed towards philosophy. They saw it as corrupting, so they took seriously the charges that Socrates was corrupting the youth. Socrates says, that's wrong. The real corruptors of people like Alcibiades, by the way, Alcibiades, remember, was on his shield, eros and the lightning bolt, right? Desire and, and spirit, which is um, the kind of thing that Socrates is trying to blend in the in the music and gymnastics parts of the Republic. So um, anyway, Socrates says, they say it's because they, got, they went into philosophy that these people became bad. But it's not. It's because they already were corrupted by the education they had already received. And the, the education they'd received was from society. Um, yeah. So uh, the next quotation. Isn't it rather the very men who say that Sophists privately corrupt the most promising youths, who are the biggest sophists, who educate most perfectly, and who turn out young and old, men and women, just the way they want them to be. When many gathered together sit down in assemblies, courts, theaters, army camps, or any other common meeting of a multitude, and with a great deal of uproar, blame some of the things done, and praise others, both in excess, shouting and clapping, and besides the rocks and the very place surrounding them echo and redouble the roar of blame and praise. <coughs> That's what, I think there's an end to that somewhere. <coughs> so Socrates says, education just doesn't happen in schools, and it's not something you do formally. You are educated by the society in which you live in, in all kinds of ways, all the time. And it's these things that um, have corrupted men like Alcibiades. 
That then put, gives us the context for the cave allegory. Um, the cave allegory starts with Socrates saying, um, now let's, let's see in an image what our nature is like in terms of its education and want of education. So you can see the connection with, um, with what Socrates says in book six, the, 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 uh, particularly that last part, right? The, the rocks and the very place surrounding them echo and redouble, right? That's the, where are the rocks in the cave? I, mean, I, I don't know if, they, if they, when they gathered an assembly, would there have been rocks around? To, uh, maybe, maybe so, I don't know. But um, this definitely makes you think, oh, the cave is the kind of thing he's, he's talking about. Or it's, 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 it's connecting us with that. Um, and then, of course, I, we have this. Um, I brought this mostly to show it off because the original is mine. It's mine. It's in my office. And I, if you want to see it, you can, but this is mine. Anyway, this is <laughs> but you can see, um, this will remind you of some of the elements here. So we have uh, um, the shadows on the wall, the prisoners chained up, can't turn around, can't look at themselves. There's a wall back here. There are people walking mysteriously behind the wall, carrying things, objects up above which are casting the shadows because of the fire, the large fire that's in the back there. And then the way up and out is along these stairs. And when you get out there, then, of course, everything is dazzlingly bright for you. So he says you start to look at things. First, you can look at shadows, like the shadow of the cross there, and then images in water. And then you can become accustomed to things and start looking at the objects around you on the earth. And then you can start to lift up your eyes to the stars and the moon and finally look at the sun itself. Um, so if we um, make that connection between what was going on in book six and this cave, um, we can see that I think an important way, the chains that are holding the prisoners down are the customs and the praise and blame and the, and the flattery and the, and the lures that, um, that exist in society. That's the education that most people have already received, particularly the kinds of souls that Socrates is, is interested in. Now, um, besides the... The, um, the book six text that I referred to, there are a couple of other indications that this is the, this is the context to be looking at the cave allegory in. Um, one is, uh, so before he talks about getting out, I think this is right, at, in the next quotation, he says, and if in that time there were among them, among the prisoners chained up, any honors, praises, and prizes for the man who is sharpest at making out the things that go by and most remembers which of them are accustomed to pass before and which after and which at the same time as others and who is thereby most able to divine what is going to come, would he be, des oh, say this is when he comes back down. Would that man having been freed and coming back and, and, and experiencing the things out of the cave, would he be desirous of them and envy those who are honored and hold power among these men? So... Um, you can see that that's, that's what's going on among the prisoners who are chained. They're all talking, and they're all, they're all praising and honoring. They're all trying to guess what's going to happen, and they give power to people. So it's a very political environment 
uh, political social environment that he's imagining in the cave. Um, and then um, another place where he, where he suggests this, skip a quotation, go to the next one. Do you suppose it is anything surprising if a man come from acts of divine contemplation to the human evils is graceless and looks quite ridiculous when compelled in courts or elsewhere to contest about the shadows of the just or the representations of which they are the shadows and to dispute about the way these things are understood by men who have never seen justice itself. So um, there we have, we see what it's shadows of. The shadows are shadows of the just or of representations of the just. So that's his, prim his primary attention is directed towards the the just, which is the subject of the whole book, and it's also the key idea for, uh, for understanding societies, is what they think of justice. Um, now, I think that people who, my, certainly I did, and I think most people who read the cave allegory tend to miss this. Um, I think it's because we all have sort of a philosophy 101 version of Plato's, uh, Plato's forms and ideas in our head. And <laughs> If you ask yourself, now what's, what's, what are examples of Plato's forms? You tend to say dogness and tableness and chairness and things like that. You will never find Plato having Socrates talk about things like that at all, for the most part. Um, <laughs> but rather what he talks about are forms, justice, beauty, truth, Goodness, holiness, the equal, the unequal. Those are his examples. Why it is that we think in terms of dog, I don't know. Because it's not from him. But that's, so then, then you're thinking about this as a, as sort of an um, epistemologically oriented, individually focused allegory. This is all just about us and our senses and me, me, in, a, me in a vacuum with my senses. Right? And, um, and to get out of this, all I have to do is realize that, uh, realize that oh, I, I use the same predicate for a bunch of things. Therefore, there's this, there's this supernatural world, and I should go after it. Um, but the quotation I skipped from book six is much more the context in which we should be thinking. He says, we have often repeated... And this is what he says, before we can get started on talking about education and the free and everything, we have often repeated there's a fair itself, a good itself, and for, so on for all the things that we set down as many. Um, and that's what he'll say a number of times in the Republic. Those are the kinds of examples he uses. Now, of course, he says there, and so on for all the things that we set down as many. So um, that leads you to think, I guess, that he, anytime we have a predicate that we would apply to many things, therefore there must be a form of it. So it would be a form of petunias and mud and, and hair and whatnot. But um, that's, it seems to me that that's not the kind of thing that Socrates is thinking about, nor is he thinking about, especially he's not thinking about it here. Um, another thing that might lead us to think that is because he, is, he does talk about the cave as representing the world of the visible, right? The, the fire stands for the sun. We're looking at the visible world. Um, but if you think about Socrates, and as you read more in the dialogues, when Socrates seems to be thinking about the world of the sun, 
he would be thinking primarily about what men do under the light of the sun. He would be thinking about them buying and selling, about them um, going about different kinds of business, about them arguing in law courts, about them doing mathematics. He says in, um, he says in the Phaedo that, um, I don't think I have this quotation anymore, but he says in the Phaedo that um, Phaedo at the beginning of the dialogue leads Socrates, once, uh, he leads Socrates out of the city to a place of natural beauty and like, and, and, and he says, Phaedo says, isn't this a wonderful place to be doing philosophy? And Socrates says, you know what, this is not my kind of spot. <laughs> I do my philosophy in the city because that's where men are and my philosophy is, is, starts with men and he says, really, I don't have time for thinking about this kind of world when I don't even understand about myself whether I'm a divine being or a monster worse than Trifo. Um, so that's a, I think that's, that's a, um, another thing when you pay attention to the dialogues, that Socrates is all about what's going on in human society. And so the world of the visible is for him more likely going to be called to mind the city life than it is trees and, and dogs and things. Except maybe dogs in the city. But they didn't have dogs in the city back then. Oh, never mind. Um, okay. Um, oh, and then one other thing that makes me think this is, I'm probably on the right track here, is that he not only talks about this as the visible world, but he'll also call it the world of opinion. And the highest part of, uh, the highest kind of knowledge you can have in the world of opinion is trust, is uh, pistis. And that's the kind of thing that you have for your laws and customs. That's the kind of thing that you have for your parents and what they've taught you to reverence. You have trust in those things. So um, the lower kind is image thinking and then, and then trust is the highest thing. So if you take that strongly, I don't think he wants us to think immediately anyway of, oh, you trust your senses, but rather you trust the things that you've received from other people and from society. Okay. Take that as the, as the context, and then we can see that, as I said, chain, the chains, the things that are holding the prisoners would be the customs of society, what they praise, what they blame, what they honor, what they laugh at. Um, when you're, if you're in with a, people, with a lot of people you want, you want to feel um, like you belong with them, you're a little unsure. If they start laughing at something that you thought was kind of cool, you'll never say it. Like, I'm never going to bring <laughs> that up. Um, uh, there's a neat uh, text from Ivan Ilyich where Leo Tolstoy, Tolstoy writes that uh, Ivan, Ivan um, when he went away to school at like 12 or 13, he started doing all these sorts of things that his mother had told him he shouldn't be doing. But he said everybody around did it, and they, these were all kind of respected young men in society. They were going to become leaders, so he thought... He, he thought exactly that he came to think it was okay, he just stopped thinking about it and, and went, about, went about doing the kinds of things that made him into the kind of man he was that he had to suffer in agony for three days to pay, up, pay for. Okay, so those are the chains. Then the shadows and the images, the shadows, he says, are um, shadows of the just or representations of the just. And seemingly then uh, it's not far-fetched to interpret the shadows as the kinds of lives that men lead whom you have experience of, particularly if they're, 
if they're prominent figures in society. Those men and the life they lead and, the, and what society honors them for are before our attention all the time. And society tells us in all kinds of ways that that's, imp that's the important stuff. What the Hollywood actors are doing, what the people running for political office are doing, what the athletes are doing, what the musicians are doing, what the people making a lot of money are doing. That's what society says is important all the time. And so you focus on that. And those, uh, by and large, are, in this allegory, people leading shadow lives. Um, they're shadows that come from a, a fire, an artificial vision of what's good. And they are often, their shadows cast by that vision of the good through these representations of what's just. And um, the representations of what just, I guess I'll suggest the way I'm thinking about it, would be that um, these are the ideals that you find expressed in literature, history, laws, maybe the most noble examples that people look up to for what a society really stands for. Um, in American terms, it would be um, like if you look at the lives of many people who make big splashes, a lot of times they will talk about how freedom, this is about freedom, this is about equality, this is about rights, and they lead terribly corrupt lives, right? But that's, that gets, we're all focused on them, and those ideals are at least mouthed by them in, in, in their defense of their lives. Now, if you actually went and looked at our ideals in the Federalist Papers or the Constitution, or in the men of the revolution, or in Abraham Lincoln. They would also be using those words, but they would be giving you a very different picture of what it is. So a lot of people would actually claim Lincoln as justification for some of the nastiest things they do. Um, but there's a big divide between Lincoln and the people who, who will mouth his, who will use his name. Um, yeah, did I do that here? And um, I think this also connects with book eight of the Republic. So in book eight, after having finished the education, Socrates then finally gets back to the, well, what are the corruptions of society? And if you look at them, each one of those corruptions has its, has its version of the good and its version of the just, and it has the kinds of characters which typify it in its arising, in its height, and in its decline. So you see, for example, that for, um, he says about in the next quotation, I think it's the next one, um, he says, well, what was the good that the oligarchs proposed for themselves? Wealth. That was the good. That was the fire illumining their, their whole societal reality. And what about democracy? What's the, what's the good that democracy, what does democracy find, define as good? Freedom. For surely in a city under democracy, you'd hear that this is the finest thing it has, and that for this reason it is the only regime worth living for, living in for anyone who is by nature free. <coughs> and a group of us were talking about the Pericles funeral oration <coughs> today, and you can see how 
how he presents an idealized version, vision of what Athens is and why you should fall in love with Athens and its greatness. Um, okay. All right, so that's um, the philosophic nature, what it really is, the false image people have of it, the, um, the problems uh, that, uh, that, the, that the true philosophic nature, we have in educating it, or he has in educating himself, uh, that arise from the change that, that society has placed upon him from the time he was born. Then Socrates turns to, okay, so how do you actually educate? How can you, how can you take this badly educated person and educate them properly? Um, so, by the way, the conclusion of the cave allegory, which I never really paid attention to until recently, he says, what do you get from all this? Well, you get that Education, we don't have to fix a person's nature to the nature, the, they have this natural power to learn. That's not the problem. The problem is what the customs, they've, the education they've received through their customs, that's the problem. That's where we what we have to do is to free them from that. If we can free them from that, then, we're, then their, um, their own natural light will allow them to learn. And so, Education, he says, is turning the whole soul so that the eye of the soul can be focused on the right things. And when it's focused on the right things, then it will be able to, to learn them. But that's what education is to do, is to turn the whole soul. Um, so that's the next bit after Pericles. The best education turns that power around from that which is coming into being together with the whole soul until it is able to endure looking at that which is and the brightest part of that which is um, the good. The soul must be turned around. Education is the art of this turning around, concerned with the way in which this power can most easily and efficiently be turned around. Um, okay, so then what are the steps of the turning around as he describes them? Uh, well, first of all, the, the whole soul that, and thinking about earlier parts of the Republic, at least involves the desires, the spirit, the thumos, the spirit, the calculating part, and it seems to involve the imagination in a very important way. Um, the first steps of the turning around, Socrates doesn't explicitly talk about, but if you think about the, the what he says in the cave, the story is that when the prisoners are moved from the chains, he's then forced to stand up and forced to turn around. What he looks at first, he doesn't get outside first. The first thing he sees are those images behind the wall illuminated by the fire. There he's actually looking at something that has color and substance of its own. That's a very painful thing. But that's just the first stage. Then he has to be forced, he actually has to be dragged up the steps to get out and get into the sunlight. Socrates doesn't talk about that first turning, I don't think. Um, watch. At least to me, the way I'm reading the whole, the whole allegory, I'd say the, that first turning would be the kind of thing where you'd say, stop thinking about freedom and equality and rights in the, in the way in which they're talked about now. 
turn around and look at what they were like for the founders. Look at what look at the ideal version of it that we have. That's a that can be a very painful thing. You start to say, oh, you know what? All this stuff that I thought was important, they would have condemned and they would have seen it as a corruption of what of of what they really held and honored and died for. Um, so there's that first part. And I think, though he doesn't talk about it, it has an importance, which I'll bring up in a little bit. Um, yeah, oh, I know. Um, Cato and Brutus might be good examples of people who have rejected what their current, the corruptions their current society lives in and calls the Roman life in favor of the ideals of Roman society that they draw from their, their history and their, and their ancient laws and customs. Um, now, Socrates tried to, in, in, if, he is, uh, if he has his way and he's able to educate people from the time they're very young, then he can, he can make it so those chains are very light chains. Um, through music and gymnastic and the effect that they have on the soul and the imagination um, and on disposing one to be, to be virtuous. But even there, there's still, that's, that's, not, that's not philosophy. They're still dependent upon their trust in the traditions and opinions that they've received from their society and from their founding and the mythical stories that are important there. So that's the first stage. Then to get up out of the cave, um, Socrates says, you cannot do that right away by dialectic. You don't do that by introducing the young to intense arguments about what the good and the fair and the just really are. He says that's very dangerous to do. Um, and he says this in the, I'm skip the quotation. The reason is, he says, surely we have from childhood convictions about what's just and fair by which we are brought up as by parents, obeying them as rulers and honoring them. Other practices do not persuade men who are at all sensible these men rather honor the ancestral things and obey them as rulers. But when after answering what he heard from the lawgiver, so if he has somebody who starts arguing with him about, about the ideals that he's received, the argument refutes him. And refuting him many times and in many ways, it reduces him to the opinion that what the law says is no more fair than ugly. And similarly about the just and good and the things that he held most in honor. After that, he will seem to become an outlaw from having been a law-abiding man. So that's what Socrates has seen, and actually the, the Athenian society seems to have seen, in many young men who started to get involved in, in serious philosophical arguments. Is all it ended up doing was convincing them that the Athenian people didn't know anything about what was good and just and fair, and so they didn't have to be respected. Uh, and we could, we could turn people any way we want and do, things, do anything we want with others. So he thinks you shouldn't do that. The young aren't ready for it, and they have to really be tested. There's a whole lot of emphasis on the importance of testing that philosophical 
the, pe the people who might have philosophical natures to see if they have the commitment to what's really good and just and true to, um, to go to the heights of philosophy. Instead, he says that um, what you should do is do mathematics. Um, and uh, uh, I'll, well, let's see. Mathema mathematics is probably surprising because um, it doesn't seem like it has much connection with the good. And maybe that's one of the reasons why he introduces it is because you can be introduced to thought that way and, and, in, and clear argumentation. You can learn to follow that sort of thing, even reductio arguments. Um, through mathematics, while also realizing that you're not thinking about the visible world. You're thinking about something which doesn't really exist, and yet you can know true things about it. So mathematics accustoms us to thinking in that way without bringing up many of the difficult, um, the difficult and dangerous arguments that Socrates fears. Um, he says also mathematics has a real charm, and um, his one uh, one example of, he gives of that is that, well, a lot of the all the mathematical disciplines tended to arise from practical considerations, at least the fundamental ones, you know, building temples or laying out fields or whatever, um, making calendars for religious events. But he says that people got, particularly the Greeks, got just intrigued by the thing in itself, apart from its practical use, and he said. They're even starting to develop solid geometry. Solid geometry, he seems to say, has no practical use at all. But the mathematicians have so fallen in love with math that they're going to develop it anyway, even though, nobody, even though society doesn't, have any, uh, doesn't honor it in any way. Um, now, that sort of thing he thinks should happen kind of in your early education, maybe into your 20s. Then he thinks, but it should be a play. It should be a play, then a, a leisurely activity. Then he says, if you're going to be, if you're going to um, get serious about it, in your 20s is when you should get serious about mathematical studies, and particularly try to see them in their whole and in their integration. Blowing through this here, um, but, and then, while you do that, while you're also leading an active life, or you're also involved in fulfilling your responsibilities in society. Um, then when you're 30 to 35 years old, then you're ready to be introduced to the intellectual gymnastics which are, which are necessary for you to really enter the philosophic life. So five years you spend in intellectual gymnastic, which um, probably involves this kind of thing, saying, well, look, math, the mathematical arguments that you made started from these sorts of presuppositions. It started from the fifth postulate. It started from the idea that you have straight lines. But what the heck are you talking about? You don't really, how much do you really know? Where did that certainty come from? Um, those kinds of arguments that get you to question the very, the first presuppositions of mathematics and probably also the things that society presupposes about what's fair, just, and holy. At that age, you're serious enough to, be, to engage in that. You've also shown enough commitment to the society that you're not likely to become lawless. Five years in intense intellectual gymnastics like that, which is the beginning of dialectic, and then 15 years in the cave. 
15 years back down in the cave fulfilling leadership roles in society. And then when you're 50, <laughs> then you're ready for the real philosophy and to actually get to have and embrace the vision of the real good. Um, okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna close then uh, with some questions. I think that this, uh, I guess there's all the questions whether I'm interpreting it correctly, of course. But if I am, um, I think questions that are good for us to think about would first of all be, has Socrates identified really what the philosophic nature is? Is that what philosophers, if you're gonna be a philosopher, should you be passionately committed to learning and to the truth, magnificent and charming, virtue, uh, courageous and just? Um, are all these things, things you say, I need to be like that if I'm gonna be a philosopher. Um, is Alcibiades closer to what we want to be like than Apollodorus? Is he right about the effects of custom, praise, blame, and ideals? That these are, the, the, and, the, and the role they already have in education. Is he right that education is a moral journey? And that as educators, we must focus on that. Um, is he right that mathematics should be charming? And that we want to make sure that students have that experience of mathematics as charming. Um, is he right that dialectic is necessary but should be delayed? That it's, that it's dangerous to engage in when you're too young and untried? <laughs> and then finally, um, is experience, is that 15 years in the cave serving in, a, in practical matters as, leader, as leaders in society is that something important for the philosopher? Should the philosopher be ruling? And then I'll close with just an exhortation from Socrates. We must take good care of all such things since if we bring men straight of limb and understanding to so important a study and so important a training and education, then justice herself will not blame us and we shall save the city and the regime. While in bringing men of another sort to it, we shall do exactly the opposite and also pour even more ridicule over philosophy. Thank you.